Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Alex Pukinskis. Based in Berlin, Alex is a product management expert with a wide range of ex- experience, from software engineer to agile coach and management consultant, to being a product and portfolio manager. You can follow him on LinkedIn at Alex Pukinskis. He is the author of the Lean Pub book, The Art of Connected Facilitation. Stop wasting time in Zoom and make plans that stick. In the book, Alex introduces readers to connected facilitation skills, which can be used for maximizing productivity in your business by accepting the contemporary reality of both in-person and remote work. In this interview, we're going to talk about Alex's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing. So thank you very much, Alex, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you made your way into a career, uh, in the, into the career that you've had. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I grew up in, in um, northeastern Connecticut, in a very rural part of Connecticut, far sort of quite a ways outside of the New York uh, area. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I started my my sort of technical career working in a computer store, building computers and um, and delivering them to the local university. And they happened to start an internet company. Um, and I learned a bit about web development there. And um, and you know, I, I actually went to to college to study. I studied a lot of things in college. I ended up graduating with a philosophy and psychology degree, and found there weren't a ton of philosophy jobs. So I kept doing web development. And um, yeah, and and um, so I spent about you know ten years or so doing technical work, and realized that that while I could do it, I just wasn't super passionate about the technical side. I was more excited about the people things. And so over time, I moved into uh, more leadership, more pro- uh, project management and product management uh, type work. So, um, you know, throughout that time, I worked at a range of different companies from, from early stage startups to actually consulting for very, very large, highly political, um, large enterprises. And, and uh, yeah, I had a range of different experiences with that. Um, Did you have any uh, particular philosopher or branch of philosophy that you were interested in back in those days? You know, I was really, I, I guess a couple of things. I was super interested in social and political philosophy. Um, actually, um, one professor, Lee Kramerman, who really stuck with me because he was, he was really, a, um, it's interesting. He was, he described himself as an anarchist and, and in this, in a, in a very technical sense, in the sense of, uh, favoring, um, autonomy over authority. And this was a very formative thing for me. Um, this, this idea of, you know, getting groups to work with lots of local autonomy, you know, rather than centralized authorities. And that's, been something that really really shaped my thinking um you know and you know so so oddly enough um i i have edited this out of the book and it'll make it back in but a little bit about um about uh, gibson and ecological psychology because this is another thing that influenced me quite a bit is that studying how we perceive and studying how humans take in information um i happened to go to the university of connecticut and there's a the center for the ecological study of perception and action where the, there were, you know, at the time this was the the, the 90s, so there was a set of um, of cognitive scientists studying perception, and really from the perspective that um, of, of looking at looking at how our brains work and um, trying to understand how we can do these just amazing feats with our brains, um, you know, so quickly, you know, the, the the and 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 in a lot of ways, I, I you know, I think it does connect a bit to how we perceive on these kinds of Zoom video calls as well. So. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. It's um, uh, just just by coincidence, I've been watching a series of lectures myself on uh, perception and and the philosophy of mind and stuff like that. I I studied a fair amount mm-hmm. of philosophy in my day as well, 
Um, and it's been this interesting refresher. And, you know, when they, they were just recently talking about that very famous video where there's like the, the experimenters were asking people to look at like a video of people kind of passing a basketball back and forth, I think, um, yeah. and counting how many times these two or three people did it. And in the background, a guy in a gorilla suit walks, walks up into the middle of the frame and like bangs his chest and then walks out. And at least half of people who watch the video, given this task to sort of count passes, ball passes, don't see it at all. Yeah, just because and of their attention being focused elsewhere. Yeah, precise, precisely. And it's 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 interesting that like a, a lot of the times when we think about like what our brains are doing in perception, we think about what they're adding to mm -hmm. what we're seeing. But there's also sort of stuff that we're kind of filtering out as well all the time, which is just a sort of fascinating kind of detail of the way the mind can be active. Yeah. And we're not conscious of a lot of the stuff we're taking in. I mean, there's so many tiny details of, you know, just when we interact with people, you know, not, not even the visual perception, but little things like, you know, what we, what we smell, you know, when, when, when we're in a room with other people, we can smell them. And we don't usually think about our smells, at least in the, in, in North America, people shower a lot. They wear a lot of deodorant. So the smells are not so intense. Right. Um, but, but when someone comes in and they're, they're in a different mood, this changes the way they smell. And it's a very subtle thing, but we can pick up a, on this very, very quickly, like something's off with Bob today. I don't know what it is, but it, you may not even be aware that you've picked up on this, but you do definitely know something's a little different with him and you're never going to see that over a Zoom video. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll get, we'll get to talking about that in a bit. I mean, this is what your, what your book is partly about is, you know, the yeah. remote, remote versus sort of in-person work and facilitation and stuff like that, which is a technical term of art, which, which we'll, we'll also talk about mm -hmm. as well. But, um, so, so you, you can, uh, one, one interesting thing about, you know, when you, when we interview guests on the podcast, particularly if they've got a background of some kind in programming or something, you can tell their, you can tell their vintage from their origin story a little bit. Um, and there's people, people who sort of got their start in the early, early sort of to mid nineties, often mm -hmm. have a story a lot like yours, where like, they were like, they just happened to be the one who knew how to do this, um, mm -hmm. you know, at the company or something like that and got to build the website and stuff like that. Uh, but you, and so, so you were from the United States, but you eventually made your way to, to Germany. How did that, how did that happen? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we, um, we lived in Colorado for a long time. We lived in Boulder, Colorado, which is a beautiful town in the mountains and just a wonderful place to live when we were there for 13 years. And, you know, I'd been part of a company that had that, that, um, for nine years there that had the successful IPO and, and, and we're kind of looking at like, what else do we want to do with our lives? Cause we're in our thirties and, and, and thinking, you know, although Boulder's beautiful, maybe this is not the place for the rest of our lives. And we, we had been wanting to move to Europe for a long time and tough to find tough to find work in a different continent if you don't know where to start looking and so it really took 10 years of kind of you know browsing around with it and then uh it happened that i i got recruited for a job in berlin um to to help do a a, a transformation um a sort of a cultural transformation of this it distributor this large um multinational it distribution company and it was you know a connection through a, a friend of a colleague in finland who um who was looking for this kind of help and yeah, so kind of quite randomly, you know, this connection was made and I got a chance to move out here and, and join that company. And, and it, was, it was a fascinating experience because this company did business in all in these 15 different European countries. And each of the countries have their own sort of sub-business. And they're all asking us to to do things with the with this these digital platforms to make improvements to them. But each one has a different way of of doing business. So I got to learn a lot about 
you know, what's different about the Dutch expectation for how we'll work together compared to the Austrian expectation of for how we'll work together. And, you know, it was, it was just wonderful to, to just get exposed to all these countries at the same time in a fairly similar way and realize that like actually over here, like everyone's working in a second language, everyone, you know, so many people working in English and it's not their dominant language and yet they're trying to collaborate. And there's an amazing amount of patience over here um, for misunderstandings and for slower collaboration. And so, yeah, so that was my first experience here, uh, with, with a European company and, you know, kind of got me thinking about, you know, all these learnings and how can I share more of them? I, uh, I worked for a few years out of London for a global investment bank and you're giving me flashbacks to uh, (laughs) a pleasant flashbacks. I remember in particular, um, you, yeah, you learned that you learned the flavors that sort of different countries came in. Um, Germany in particular, I remember often having to be told like we have to stop work at five. Mm-hmm. Um, that would, that was sort of a thing that you would hear from, from German collaborators that, you know, wasn't true of other countries where people like, you know, in England, you know, you used to work till 2am every mm-hmm. day kind of thing. Uh, but in Germany, it was a lot more, a lot more structured always. Yeah, definitely the strong boundaries around working times here and, yeah, and different, different levels of initiative. And also just, I mean, the communication styles are diff- totally different too. I mean, there's different tolerance for negativity. Um, there's different, you know, expectations for building personal connections, uh, across these countries. And, uh, yeah, I, one, you know, I, go ahead. I was just gonna say, even, even like the email salutation, mm-hmm. you know, can differ the expectations around that dear. So yeah. And how, and how much extra stuff you're going to put in the message into the messages. I mean, I, I, I remember at one point I had a. I was working with the, the the Austrian country leader, and he had um, he had a request for a he had a, something he felt was very urgent for us to do uh, with the platform, and in order to solve a business problem, and he he basically said, "Look, we sent an email saying we need you to do this right away within the next week or two. and it wasn't going to happen. Like there was there it was it was impossible to do this for a variety of reasons. And so, as an American, I'm like, okay, I'm going to inform him so that he doesn't plan on this. I'll inform him quickly. Hey, like I understand this is diff- important for you. And I really respect those reasons, but just so you know, like it's not going to happen right now, but I want to meet with you immediately to figure out what we're going to do about it. And so very kind of normal message for American style communication, but for, for him, this was deeply inappropriate because I was a lower level in the organization that he was. And, and for me to say no to him in such a direct manner was just not something that, 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 uh, would be done. And not without also a lot more sort of padding of, um, of, of, um, text, extra text, and also not without using another layer of the organization to communicate that bad news to him. And, you know, I just, of course, didn't, didn't know that my first year over here. And so, yeah. That, that actually leads me to ask a question that I wasn't, I wasn't planning on asking you, but, um, you know, one of the, one of the funny things about being Canadian is, and traveling and living abroad is that you learn what it's like to be treated like an American. Um, (laughs) Uh, what's that, what's that like nowadays actually being an American in Europe? And I don't, I don't mean as a professional, I mean, just like living there or traveling around. I have to think about this for a minute. I mean, I think, I do think the attitude towards America has changed substantially. Um, I think there was a time when America was viewed more optimistically than it is. And it's not to say like, I I don't encounter a lot of anti-Americanism, but there's a little bit less delighted America than there once was. I think, um, you know, there's certainly a range of people with different attitudes towards the country. 
Um, I think that, you know, there, you know, over the last six years, there have been times when people are really like baffled as to what's happening and outright concerned about uh, the, the choices America's made in, with regards to foreign policy. And so that there's often this, yeah, please explain to us what's going on. We don't understand why America would make these choices. Um, I think also, uh, you know, for me, there's a, you know, you, you grow up in America thinking like it's a sort of cultural center of the universe and the longer you spend away, you realize, well, yes, there are certain aspects of American culture that are important, but th there's a whole world out here, of course, that has a, its own set of cultures and, you know, and American culture is not the dominant force that it once was. And I, I don't think America by and large is really aware of that. Um, so that's not to say America doesn't have an influence on the rest of the world. It's just, it's, it's really changing at this point. So, yeah, thank, 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 thanks very much for that. That's really interesting. I recall my, my, my sort of time abroad was the kind of aughts. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that was, you know, there was, I, I did encounter like a, a some anti-Americanism, you know, even though I'm Canadian, mm -hmm. um, but it was all, it was all kind of rather generic and that, that, um, representation that you're giving of now people kind of being puzzled uh, mm -hmm. and asking questions does sound like a, a real change. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's also geopolitically a really challenging time at the moment with, with the war and everything. And I think that's also made Europe dependent on America in a way that it hadn't been prior to, you know, to last year. And that's definitely it's an awkward feeling in a lot of ways. So yeah. For, for many people here. Yeah. Um, Sort of moving moving closer to the to, to your book, um, uh, you mentioned working for uh, really some really big companies uh, from time to time in your in your career. Mm -hmm. and actually, this is specifically from your book. So there's this passage in there about describing a company culture, and this I think it, it, this also speaks to what you were talking about with your you know interest in philosophy and stuff like that of the, the tyranny of structurelessness. Mm -hmm. um, and you worked for a company where there was I think I think the CEO talked about how there was there was no structure but there was fabric. And by, by fabric, the CEO kind of meant unnamed people with special status, basically. Uh, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because it struck me as like, I, I, I very gross, um, uh, that, that kind of corporate culture. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he intended it to be that way at all. I think, you know, like it is a consulting company. So like the primary business is very clear. You go to clients, you help them with their problems, you build hourly work. And so like, you know, one was able to do that work in a fairly straightforward way. But I think the question that like, and I was at the company, I think where there, there were like 500, a thousand people working there. And so it was just, you know, there's, there's this inflection point when a company passes 150 people where you can't really know everybody anymore. And the company was a few notches down the road from there. And I think there was still that, that sense of, you know, there are a ton of bright people who work there. And, and, and I, I think the, the, the CEO is just in the habit of relying on the people he knew to keep connections going. And he believed that was, that was okay and, and good for the organization. But for me, as a, as a new consultant joining, I just found it was really hard to figure out like, how do, how do I actually get an assignment that's close to my part of the country? So I'm not flying across the continent every week, but instead, you know, you know, doing something that's, that's, that's close to, close to where my family is. Um, but I really don't think there was any malice. He just really felt like I want to avoid a formal corporate structure where the roles are explicit. And he, I think he really did believe that that was a way to, a way to make it easier for people to move around. And I don't think, I, I just don't think he was aware that it, of, of how difficult it was, um, for, for, yeah, for newcomers to, to find out 
how things get done and to find out who to talk to. I guess, I mean, it's easy, easy for me to say just sort of reading a passage from your book and sort of passing judgment on the CEO of some big company or something like that. But, you know, the idea of like a sort of like, I think that often people who've enjoyed kind of being in a superior position in a hierarchy in a big company can often kind of lose perspective uh, from what it's like to be to be new in the company and to not not be in a dominant position, uh, which mm-hmm. I think that you write about you write about in your book, you know, that like, you know, these these kinds of hierarchies can exist. Uh, they can exist in meetings uh, and you might not know about them and stuff like that. But I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your um, what the inspiration was to move on to talk about your book specifically, but what motivated you to, to get get going on the project? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it was really my pandemic experience that got me going on this. So so I mean, I, I write about this in the book. I I learned so I kind of picked up some workshop skills, uh, you know, on my own, just by reading books of basic planning workshops, but never really had formal facilitation training until, um, you know, right in the beginning, I, I, I got a chance to work with this, this woman, Jean Tabeka at, at Rally Software. And, um, she had, she was a certified professional facilitator. She wrote a book on facilitation. And so she really, you know, she, she taught me and, and, and many hundred, hundreds of people at the company great facilitation skills and taught our clients these skills. And so like I developed this set of uh, skills for running in-person workshops that, um, that I felt pretty good about that actually worked pretty well. You know, I, I, over time I had a chance to run a lot of in-person workshops, really big ones, you know, hundreds of people, you know, down to, you know, small ones with senior people, small ones with teams. And for me, this was like a core part of how I do my work is, you know, not every day, but you know, a number of times throughout the year, I'm using a, a like a connect, a, like a an event where we come together to to plan or to or to get alignment in order to achieve my uh, to get my team where I want them to be. And so this has been like a core part of how I've worked for, you know, for you know nearly 20 years really. And so um, when the pandemic hit, of course, we all adjusted and found ways to do facilitation online because that was what we had to do. And um, and it was okay in the beginning. I mean, I remember in 2020 feeling like, wow, this is actually going pretty well. I mean, I miss like being with people, but, but we're able to get stuff done. And, um, but over time I started to feel like I was just missing certain moves that I had come to really rely on, um, you know, and it's just really struggling to get the same results when we're meeting online compared to, compared to when we're meeting in person. And, like I felt really bad. I felt like, well, maybe I just don't have the skills to figure this out. You know, maybe, maybe like someone smarter than me can, 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 um, can do this, but maybe I'm just, I was just a one trick pony. I could do the in-person stuff and I can't get the same results online. And of course, like the lockdowns lasted longer here in, in Germany than they did, um, uh, you know, in the U S where I come from. And, um, so we had to be more and more time. And so we kept, kept going at it. I had some close colleagues at my company who were also trying to figure this out with me, how to, how to do these workshops. And, but I definitely had a low point where I was sort of like, maybe my, the thing I love to do, I can't do anymore. You know, maybe because the nature of work is changing so much, like maybe that time is just over the time of us working face to face is over and I'm going to have to find some new skills. And I was, I was quite down about this for a while. And, um, you know, as we started to, you know, work face to face a bit more, you know, I, I kind of worked past that, but I had to ask myself, like, am I ever going to be able to go back to working face to face with people? Cause that's been such a key part of my life. 
And, um, and I, I kind of had to get myself to the point where I accepted, maybe not, you know, maybe I'm going to be standing at this desk in my, in my home office, you know, for the rest of my career. And I have to figure out a different way to live. And, um, you know, so I was really wrestling with that. And so, so the way what got me going on this book was like, okay, well, if that's the situation I'm in, I really need to like formalize how I'm going to go about doing that. I need to figure out like, what are the boundaries and what are the limits to do this? And like, I had and talked to some of the other great facilitators I know about, how are they doing it? How are they dealing with, um, this style of work? Cause some of them seem to be doing a bit better at it than I am. And so maybe there's stuff to learn. So, so I thought, okay, I, I can really, you know, talk to some of these other people and, and gather some of these ideas and figure out like, what's, what's the best we can do if we're not face to face, you know, what's the best possible outcomes we can reach. And, um, so in a way I wanted to write it in part, um, to clarify that for myself, but also I felt like there's enough learnings here that there's value for other people. I have a third answer too. I feel like I'm going on a bit. No, no, please, please go on. Please go on. I mean, I think the, the, the other part is like, I, I was really lucky to be able to meet Jean and work with her face to face in an office. And I, and I looking at some of my younger colleagues, people in their twenties who were, who were starting with product management, who were starting with leadership and who are doing this on a remote basis. And I'm realizing a lot of these people aren't going to get to a great face to face workshop in the first five years of work, maybe not 10 years. And so like there's, we have to find some way to, to, to teach them that, that there are ways to facilitate, that the facilitation is, is a skill that you can learn that will help you get to better, better outcomes with groups. And, and so I, 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 um, my, my colleague, Ronica, who I facilitated with a lot years ago, um, has also, um, been focused on like, how do we get these skills to the next generation of people? And I think that's a really interesting challenge given the way the nature of work has changed. Yeah, uh, that 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 leads me to ask, um, what what is facil? I mean, people can probably guess from the context, but what is facilitation? Yeah, it's a good, yeah, it's a good a good question. I mean, I think facilitation is really about helping uh, groups of people get to some outcome together that they can't reach on their own through through just discussion. Um, and this, this I haven't this for example in the context of like like say developing an app for example. You've got a bunch of people who are like you got, have different like sort of roles and responsibilities who all need to find a way to work together to sort of get to the, uh, get to the end they need to get to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it could, you know, it could be like a team needs to come together and figure out how are we going to work together? What are our norms going to be? What's our purpose? Um, they might need to make a plan together. They might need to reflect on their work in the past. And facilitation is really about just, yeah, about the act of guiding the group through that process of coming together. Um, which, I mean, honestly, people, you know, if you put people together in a room, we can do quite a bit naturally if we have enough time. Like if you send five people off for two days to a, an offsite and you give them no plans, they can do an amazing amount of stuff together. They can figure out how to work together. They can figure out their plans. But, but if you, you know, you reduce the time, you increase the group size, you add some conflict, some tension, it can be really hard for them to get to agreement in a natural way. And so facilitation is about sort of structuring that experience so that the group can get somewhere they wouldn't, they wouldn't get on their own. It's really fascinating. Um, the, uh, the sort of practicalities of how, you know, going, going, going out to zoom basically kind of changed those kinds of activities. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of a guest I had a couple of years ago now. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird to think about the pandemic being years in the past, you know, or having started years in the past, but she, um, she wrote a book on lean pub uh, with a co-author, 
about digital first events. So her, her, her whole job had been conferences, mm-hmm. um, for, a, for a company that was 100% remote from day one. Um, and they would have these, like these, these get togethers. And so then she had to arrange them to, to be digital. And it was mm-hmm. just like very weird things. Like, what do you do with breaks in between speakers and stuff like that? Like, as you know, in a, in a conference, people go get a coffee or something like that. Right. But what do you do? If it's digital, and I'm thinking specifically about the kind of work you would have done in that, that there's this great example you give in your book of being with uh, Gene and going, uh, you, you were going going somewhere to do some facilitation and the sort of projector didn't show up. So you had to do everything, you know, or you chose to do things with, you know, flip charts mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But, you know, the kind of the kind of work you're talking about, like, say, a group of people coming together, you know, thinking about the next, you know, year of product development or something, and what they might do is get sticky notes and put them on a on a board and stuff like that and sort of rearrange them and things like that. So the challenge of trying to reproduce the kind of outcome and sense of collaboration online is just, you know, a very difficult one. Definitely. And it's amazing how much we we can sort of do naturally almost without thinking about it. Like, you know, if you're in a room with stickies on the table, any individual can grab those stickies at any time and start, uh, start writing on them and hang them up on the wall. And to do that in a Zoom meeting is a very different act, right? Like the stickies, first of all, are not visible for everybody. So you've got to start, you've got to start talking about it. You've got to share your screen. You've got to, you know, you have to find a tool to do this. So it's just, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of things we can rely on when we're, when we're meeting in person and um, that, that don't, don't work automatically for us online that have to be made much more explicit. And I think what was really interesting about Jean's teachings is that she really felt like to be a great facilitator, you should learn formal facilitation. So you should learn, and she taught a a two-day class with an extremely formal facilitation approach that actually, within which you'd even script everything you'd say at times. And she felt like once you know how to do this formal facilitation, then you can become more informal and be, be very adaptive. So um, and, but I found actually you have to be much more formal and explicit in the online world because otherwise, you know, people, people get lost and they can't cue off of each other the same way they, they would in a room. Yeah, definitely. No, I think that that's, uh, it's just such an interesting challenge, you know, for example, and like you said, I mean, you brought up, you brought up smell, for example, and you know, the sort of unconscious cues and things like that. Uh, but there can be things like, you know, sort of. You know, I, I have this habit of like, when I have a thought, I'll go, oh, and like, you know, turn to the side and stuff like that. And you can, mm-hmm. you can tell when people are sort of what mood they're in or whether they've just had a bright idea or something like that. When, when you're on Zoom, it's sort of like much, yeah, much less, I don't know, there's much less to go off as you're saying, and, and much absolutely. harder to kind of structure things. Yeah, absolutely. I have a colleague I was, I've uh, been working with, uh, in the last year and he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He's like a warm hearted person. If you're, you know, when you, when you see him in person, he's like deeply empathetic. He makes eye contact. He's like, you know, he, he gives you lots of nonverbal feedback and he's just like one of these people who's a delight to be with because of the way he engages with other humans. But in an online meeting, he is not getting any of that feedback he's, he's used to, and he goes on and on. He just, he, he talks for much too long online because he's not getting this, this feedback that, that he as a wonderful person is super attuned to more than most people. And you put him in this online environment and suddenly you've taken away that, that feedback that he's relying on and, and, and he goes on. And I think this is one of the things, one of the biggest problems with online workshops is this lack of interruptions. You know, we, 
we're all used to thinking it's bad to interrupt people, but actually when we do it, um, we do it a lot of different ways in real life. We, we, and we do it quite subtly at first. And this is very, very easy to do in a room, you know, just by moving your body or making very small noises, you can begin, you can do a soft interruption before you do the, Hey Len interruption. Mm -hmm. Like that's, you don't have to do that in person. Whereas on, on zoom, I've got to, you know, I have to do this mm -hmm. and, uh, which feels really awkward. So, mm -hmm. you know, our, we, yeah, we can't rely on these these simple things that we're so used to. And um, I guess on that on that general note, I mean, do you do you think so? You, I mean, you do kind of say this, but like the world of kind of hybrid work is here to stay. I think is your is your general position on things. Yeah, I mean, I've gone I've gone back and forth on this, but I, I do I don't see. I think there are some companies that are able to pull off a high quality co-located in-office work environment. So there are some companies where they're really working to say like, let's get whole teams together in the office so that, um, the, so that, that people can communicate every day, you know, and, and, you know, at least, you know, sort of four plus days a week in the office. So there's a lot of face-to-face -face communication. Actually, I was just talking to Rich Sheridan, who's with a company called Menlo Innovations in Ann Arbor. Um, that's famous for doing this before the pandemic, and and they've actually gone back to in person, and um, they're having having you read know, good results with it, although it was a difficult move to get everybody back in the office. So I think there's a minority of companies that are really embracing like deep face to face collaboration and setting up the team structure so that you're not surrounded by irrelevant people, but instead people you really need to work with. But I think the majority of companies struggle to staff teams in the same cities now, and I see. You know, because we have this option to make distributed teams, it just seems like there's so many companies that are like, you know, we really want the talent in different places. So we're going to build teams out of people in multiple cities. And and as soon as you do that, it doesn't really matter if the company wants to be back in the office. Because if, if your team's in multiple cities, you've always got a couple people on video for every meeting. Um, and I think that's, that's the reality that most return to office businesses are seeing. So, yeah, so... I, I, we're also going to continue to see some remote first businesses. I mean, there are, there are thriving remote first businesses. Um, and I think, you know, they still need to find ways to, to make decisions together online. Um, but, but I think, I, I think actually the remote first business and the, the, and most companies that are, are doing return to office are pretty much in similar situations, uh, with regards to the need to, to collaborate digitally. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. Um, uh, I've talked to talked to people from all around the world on the podcast about this for through like through the through the years of the pandemic and stuff like that. And they, so there, there's people who are like, you know, to think about think about the things that have been lost. But there's also people who talk about the things that have been gained, right? You know, like like industries, for example. I think I was talking to someone in in defense who said that you know, like it would have if it weren't for the pandemic, we would not have been able to have people we'd never met, you know, in person on our team. Mm -hmm. it just wasn't the culture or, or people, yeah. you know, people like on video calls from multiple time zones kind of thing. Um, but you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there as well to sort of have people who you otherwise would have not been able to hire or have on your team. And now all of a sudden, like, you know, if you're, once you could do this, you know, the whole world of, of people is available to you. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think you have to kind of make this trade off of like, is there more value to to that availability or is there more value like can i create a, a strong enough co-located environment that i'm getting more benefit from from being having people in the same room to 
to outweigh the benefit of, of distributed people. I mean, I, I, I think that honestly, most companies are not set up as efficiently as they believe they are when it comes to day-to-day -day work. And so like, I do deeply believe that face-to-face -face collaboration can enable you to go faster with the right setup. But, but, and I've been on teams that have done that, but it's just, it's, it's so rare. And I think for most companies, they're just not, not there. I'm really curious to uh, ask, um, have you seen or done uh, any experimentation with like times of day when it comes to sort of actually being in person? Because one, I remember back in my, in my old kind of like, you know, grinding it out, putting on a suit, going to the office days, I always found the idea of like commute, everybody in a city commuting to and from work at the same time to be an, outra an, an outrage, like just truly inefficient and ridiculous. Uh, have you seen people experimenting with that? Like say, like, let's like meet from like noon to six or something like that. I've definitely seen it like within teams and spontaneously. I mean, here in Berlin, like, you know, I think I worked for a relatively relaxed company during the, uh, it was a music tech company. So, so I think that the, the, there's a lot of flexibility around work style when you're primarily working with musicians, um, and work style and timings, right? So it tends to be bursty and uneven. And so for us, it was quite natural to say, Hey, we're just going to come in for the afternoon to do this work together. And that's, that's our agreement, you know? Yeah. But definitely have seen, seen teams doing that where they say like, we're going to set aside certain times for us to come together. Cause otherwise you might end up making an hour long commute and then find that you're getting on the, getting on the phone with a bunch of people who didn't make the commute today. And so, so I think everybody's benefiting from the, the, the flexibility. And so you do have to be more intentional about planning that time. I have to tell a story that I've told before on the podcast about uh, Bruce Springsteen was at this conference in Austin and someone had booked him to give a talk at, at noon mm -hmm. um, and he showed up an hour late uh, and he got up on stage and he goes, no respectable musician is awake at this hour, which was just absolutely hilarious, <laughs> It's particularly because it's true. <laughs> it's definitely true. And, and, um, and I think... Uh, you know, it's interesting too, like in the music industry, I do think the whole schedule has shifted and that goes for music tech as well. So yeah, it, it is definitely everybody starting later and then also staying around later. So, um, and you know, staying into the evening. So, yeah. Um, in the last part of the interview, we talk about the person's experience, if they're, if they're an author of, of writing and stuff like that. And so you're publishing your book in progress. Uh, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you, if you would want to, talk to other people who might be interested in doing something like that themselves or who are going through it themselves. What's your approach to, to, to writing? Yeah. I mean, I think, so it's interesting for this one. I, I, I sat down, I, 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 um, I started drafting this in, um, actually using notion, um, because I've been using notion for work and I found notion was a I enjoyed it as a collaborative platform. So I had a couple, couple readers who were looking at this in notion and, and giving me feedback. Um, and I think that worked for me initially to at least get a, a draft structure in place. Um, the thing that sort of, um, and so I really just started writing, um, and, and trying to gen, just trying to get, get through this thing because I wasn't entirely sure what the overall structure was that I wanted to have. I feel like I'd writ I wrote like something like a hundred, 120 pages before I, I settled on a structure that made sense. Um, I had this sort of, I really wanted to make a, a how-to book that wasn't like overly abstract. And so I really wanted to start by giving people some, some scripts that they could use and some very basic techniques without having a lot of theory so they could improve their readings right away. Um, and I wrote that part 
And then I was like, okay, now I need an introduction. So I went back and wrote an introduction, which ended up being 50 pages long, like way too long. And I, I gave it to some of my readers and they were like, and, and I, I was getting not getting feedback for the part of book I wanted because they were all getting bogged down in the introduction. So, so I ultimately ended up, um, you know, sort of sort of like effectively taking chunks of that and put moving it much later in the book. But I also moved over to Lean Pub in part because I like I, I really wanted to see. I, I really wanted the feeling of it as a book. And of course, in Notion, it doesn't feel like a book at all. And and I wanted to start getting a sense for like how is this coming together? Like does it. It does it act? Can I read it? You know, because you can you you can sit down and read a bunch of documents in Notion, but it's not the same as reading through a book. So, so so then I then I kind of moved it into Notion and began you know sharing. Or, or sorry, moved it into into LeanPub and then began began sharing um, drafts back with that small group of readers um, before I published the first version of it. So I actually wrote a a full end to end terrible first draft. Um, which is in LeanPub with most of it, um, most of it hidden. Um, and, and I'm now going through and like editing it section by section and releasing the, the edited sections on LeanPub. So what's going out there is actually my second draft, um, which I know is not really like the sort of the, you know, you sort of, you, you look at the LeanPub vision and you think, okay, well, I should start very, very iteratively with very small uh, segments. But for me, I think I needed the whole thing to, to have some overall coherence. And I was concerned I might not get there doing that in public. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing those really great details. Um, that's really, really helpful to people who are sort of thinking about how to approach it themselves. I mean, the, the idea of like having more done, but then releasing it as you, as you editing it when you go, it's actually a really kind of compelling, I think, way to, way to do it. Um, as you say, there's, there are some people who use LeanPub to kind of like, just like Put a chapter out there, put a chapter out there, put a chapter out there. There are other people who are like complete book, all done, copy edited and stuff like that. And if, you know, there are our, our typical advice is like, find something that you, find a process that you actually enjoy if you can. Um, most people who write books beat themselves up a lot, but, um, yeah, no. and, and so that's a sort of important thing to internalize is there's going to be some self beating up going on, but, but finding a process that you're comfortable with is really the most important thing. I'm curious, how are you, how are you sharing drafts with people uh were you like sending them pdfs were you like getting them onto notion somehow um uh, so uh, with notion i got them onto notion and then when i moved to lean pub i started sending them the both the pdfs and the epub file turns out one of my readers has a remarkable and is is marking up the epub and and sending that back to me which is working working pretty well how are they how are they marking it up um you know Honestly, I'm not sure exactly how it works. It's it's really I'm getting the, so they've got the EPUB file that they're handwriting on top of and then sending me back somehow a PDF that they've generated off the bat. Oh, yeah, it's just so fun to learn about all the different things people do and the ways the ways they figure out how to collaborate on stuff like that. Yeah, well, well it's um, but but yeah, it's, it's that that seems to be working well enough. Yeah. And I guess the last question I have along those lines is: Do you have like a schedule? Um, that you're that you're working to, you're like I'm going to release a new new chapter every month, kind of thing. I mean, I've been thinking about that initially. I, you know, my thought was I should put something out each week, and then I I, I feel like uh, it's a little bit overly rigid, and and like so today I just put out part two, so now it's I, I have I think 130 pages out there, and so I just added 70 pages after like roughly two weeks. Um, so I think. Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to get 
I have a, a, a desire like within the next month or so to get it to like the, the book is useful end to end. Like I want to get like useful and readable, if not great. And so like uh, I had sort of like, okay, there's the first draft, which is um, not necessarily wonderfully readable and maybe not useful yet. The second version should be readable end to end and useful. And then I want to do another pass and making it more engaging. So I think, um, yeah, I think within another month or so, I should be able to, to finish the second pass. And then I think it's really about getting, getting some deep feedback on it because I am worried a little bit worried technically about, um, is this the, are these the best answers available for, for how to do facilitation, right? They're my answers and I know they work sort of, but I really, I'm talking to a number of experts in the field to try to get some other perspectives. And, and I, I feel like that's sort of my third, third pass is to really, you know, add stories, add color and overall make, you know, work on the flow and make sure it's like enjoyably readable, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. It totally does. Uh, that's a, that's a really great, um, process. And it's just so interesting to hear you working, working through, you know, like, yeah. you know, how you want to approach things and how that's changed over time. Um, the last question I always ask uh, on the podcast, if the guest is writing on LeanPub is, um, excuse me, if there is one thing, one feature we could build for you or one problem we could fix for you, can you think of anything that you would ask us to do? I mean, um, I make, so, well, initially I had a, uh, some trouble with, with markup problems, getting the book to generate in the beginning, but that didn't last very long. I think that one of the things I'm struggling, I'm still, so after a couple months of using the platform, I'm still struggling with certain aspects of the Markua syntax that are just not in my brain yet. And so I'm constantly going back to look up, okay, how do I actually format uh, the, there's three pieces of, a, of an image, right? There's like the alt text, the image and the caption, and I can never remember which is which. So there's a few things like that, that I, I'm constantly going back into the text file that has the answers for this to, to dig it up. And yeah, I wish I'd love some help. Um, I'd love some help with the markup learning, I think. Um, not, not so much a tutorial, but just, just helping me figure out like without having to, having to leave the editor. Cause I'm actually using the web editor. Um, and I would love it if the web editor would just, um, in context, help, you know, have remind me what all these syntaxes are because I, you know, I have to internalize them. Thanks very much for that. That's, um, that's, that's a really interesting. I mean, for, for anyone listening, who's unaware, you know, LeanPub has, um, we have an upload mode, so you can like write, make ebook files however you want, and just upload them to LeanPub if you want to. But we also have, you know, our kind of baby is you know writing books in LeanPub, um, and when you do that, you write in plain text, uh, and what that means when you write in plain text, that means you need to actually like do the type in the formatting yourself, right? So if you want something in italics, you surround it with an asterisk on either side. If you want it to be bold, you put two asterisks. But then of course you can think about doing more complex things like adding an image. What if I want to have an image caption? what if I want alt text, you know, and stuff like that. Um, so that, that can get very tricky when you have to type it out. And one of the things that we have not been as good at as we should have is like clear explanations. Um, and one thing we're working on doing is these explainer videos that, that I start starting to do on, on YouTube, where it's like very brief explanations of things. Um, uh, you know, um, and a lot of people find the videos more comfortable than sort of going back to manuals, but also the manuals, like it's, it's very tricky, right? Because like, for example, if we show someone how to insert an image, but with no caption and no alt text, 
that's the easiest thing to learn, right? And they're like, oh, now I get it. But but what if someone wants to have a caption? What if they want alt text? Well, do we show all three examples when we're onboarding someone or do we sort of like mm -hmm. layer layer them later in the experience? And how do you structure that? And um, so it's it's very difficult. But yeah, you know, like if you're, if you've been, you know, sort of struggling with that after like, you know, working with Linkbo for this long, like that definitely sort of something we really need to kind of prioritize. And probably what we really need to do is think about like, what are the top 10 things that a new author needs to know? And just like find mm -hmm. it an easy way to introduce them to that uh, is probably what we should do. So yeah, thanks very much for that. Yeah, you know, I actually left this out, um, but I really actually now that I think about it, I did my first writing towards this in, in the Medium editor the, the, because I, I have a blog on Medium. I, I do feel they do a great job with their with their editor in terms of making something that's very um, that 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 um, allows you to create semantic markup with very very easily, and I you know I think that their approach you know worked really well for me, and then ultimately I I you know so but a lot of that is done in context, like in context help with the. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. We're we we are actually working on a new a new feature for the browser writing mode that will be mm -hmm. much more along those lines. Uh, okay. Exactly. Exactly for these kinds of reasons. So, I'm, yeah. I'm not not sort of like announcing a super surprise or anything like that, but it is it is definitely in the works. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. we're, and we're really looking forward to having that come out. Well, Alex, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of uh, your your evening in Berlin. Uh, to talk to, to me and to talk to all of us. And thank you very much for using LeanPub as the platform for your great book. Yeah, thanks for making it available. It's been, been a really wonderful, wonderful platform to use. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.